Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to make your way in this morning as we just start with our call to worship. It's found in Psalms chapter 98. So we read the first three verses of David. It's a psalm of David where he writes, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has healed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Amen? Father, you are the beautiful one. Your son is the beautiful one, the Trinity. Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness and your love towards us. I pray that it would just be so evident as your love permeates our hearts, Lord, and it finds hands and feet as, as we just consider your love for us and as we love each other. Thank you for joining us this morning as we invite you in a deeper sense. Lord, I pray that all that we do this morning would glorify you. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. I pray that you come hungry and thirsty before him, for that's his promise. Join with me as we just pray together as a congregation. Father, you are a great and mighty God. Your glory is displayed among the heavens and all of creation. Your majesty fills the earth with wonder. Everything that we have is a grace gift from you. Everything we have is due to your love and your mercy. You are a wonderful provider who is faithful and compassionate to your children. May we see more of your beauty this morning as we lift up our hearts to worship you. Our hearts are grieved, though, as we contemplate our failings. Sin lies at our door. It desires to rule over us. We confess that we have considered the pleasures of this world and have sought satisfaction from its fountain. Yet we desire to follow your word, yet times we have quenched and even denied the Spirit's gracious work. We come before you this morning to confess our sins that you may once again restore the joy of our salvation and lead us to the hope. Search us, O God, see if there be any wicked way in us, root it out, and strengthen us for the battle. We join our voices this morning to give thanks for your forgiveness that heals our soul. Thank you for sending your Spirit to enliven, to illuminate, to empower, and to build us up into the image of your Son, Jesus. Thank you for hearing the cry of the sinner and the prodigal child. For we are destitute without your mercy. Thank you for your church, your bride. May we edify and build each other up by praying, encouraging, rebuking, forgiving, and loving each other this morning. We humbly come before you this morning to seek your word for instruction and training in righteousness, for correction 
We desire to hear from your Spirit to speak into our hearts the truth of Christ. Hear our prayer this morning, O Lord. Do not despise your servants. Grant us the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, kindness, patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who as our high priest presents these before you. And all of God's people said, Amen. I'm so glad you're here this morning. We want to continue to worship as we just continue to make our way through that chapter and that book, that letter to the Church of Galatia. And we're still in the midst of the great debate as the questions are asked, who are God's children? Are Gentile believers members of God's family? Are they included into the covenant? Do they receive the blessings of Abraham? The Judaizers who have been influenced and crept their way into the church have argued that only those that have been circumcised are members of God's family and are blessed. Paul, however, contends that those who have the Spirit are the children of God, and they also receive the blessing of Abraham. And we saw that in our reading earlier this morning. In the third chapter of Galatians, we have seen Paul's defense of the gospel that both Jew and Gentiles are included in salvation by grace through faith. Paul has set forth three spiritual truths. The first one is that there is no need to be circumcised in order to belong to the family of God. The second was that the Spirit is the true sign of belonging to God's family, and that faith is the only thing necessary to be part of the family of God. Now the Judaizers, though, have responded to Paul by saying that your message is not true. Justification is not by faith alone, but it's faith plus works. We hear that message today. It's not just an ancient argument. It is an argument that's made today by many other denominations who preach a different gospel. However, we must be true of this. You must be certain that is a different gospel. And as Paul said earlier in Galatians, that anyone who preaches a different gospel, let him be accursed. John Piper writes concerning this passage that some of the church members of Galatia have been bewitched into thinking that you start the Christian life by faith, but you complete yourself by works. The Spirit is some sort of booster rocket to get you going. But then your own engines kick in and the flesh completes what the Spirit began. And I believe that Spirit, that lie, is still at work in many churches today. And it is not the Gospel. They argue that faith might have been good for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but now that that, now that has been surpassed by the Mosaic Law. In other words, for them, they would contend that the law changed the old way of salvation by faith. It is now by works of obedience to the commands of the law. Hence, they're telling the Church of Galatia, you must be circumcised and you must follow the dietary laws. Their belief is that from the time of the law and on forward, God would justify by faith, but he would add works to it. The Jew would ask, why else would he give the law? And I think that's a good question. We need to answer that. That's what Paul is trying to do. 
So even though that might be their mindset, Paul in today's passage is anticipating that argument, that faith is not enough, by demonstrating that the promise, the Abraham covenant, is actually superior to the law, which we might call the Mosaic covenant. So from here on, you may hear me say the promise and the law. The promise refers to the covenant made to Abraham, while the law refers to the Mosaic covenant, or what some may call the Sinaiic covenant. Some may ask, why is Paul continuing this discussion? You may be answering that yourself and saying, yeah, can't we go to something else? Man, this thing seems so out of the wheelhouse. I just want to know how I can be nice to my wife this week. I just want to know how I can get along with my boss. I just want to know how I can make better investments. Well, Paul says this is important. It's important for you and I to understand. It's important to the church's Galatia. Why is this so important, people ask? Why do Christians need to or argue over such things? Isn't it all right if they believe that and we believe this? That's just tolerance, is it not? But Paul continues this conversation as we will today as we follow his writings. Because it's important for us as Christians to understand the gospel and its implications. Paul is about to give the churches of Galatia and us today as his readers a lesson on redemptive history as we tackle chapter 3, verse 15, all the way up to chapter 4, verse 11. We're only going to tackle the first part of that today, but we're about for the next few weeks to give a redemptive history. Why is it by faith? What is it about the law? So with that, let's turn to Galatians chapter 3, where he says to give a human example, brothers, chapter 3 of Galatians 15 through 18, as we talk about the faithful promise. He goes on to write, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Verse 17, this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And Father, recognizing the wonder and the majesty that's found in your word as you reveal to us, Lord, your plan for all of man and our history. And Lord, how you're redeeming, reconciling us to yourself. And Father, so we, we've counted a privilege to, to join together with each other. Just as we join with saints throughout the world as they, they come on a Sunday and they, and they recognize you in the priority of your word. Father, thank you for Galatians. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for this, this that we may know what the gospel is. Speak to us this morning. Keep our hearts uh, attentive. Make our ears listen, Lord. Help us to settle down and just seek to see what your Holy Spirit has for us. Lord, that we may please you with our reading and with our obeying. In your name we pray. Amen. So I want to share with you why this is important. As Paul shares four reasons why the promise is superior to the law. He says the promise is superior to the law. The first one we're going to look at this morning in verse 15 is that the promise was confirmed by God. 
the promise was confirmed by God. Look at verse 15. For he writes again, Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The first note I want to say is Paul here finally slips into another gear as he brings down the tone in the conversation. You might remember earlier in chapter 3, he says, You foolish Galatians, oh, how foolish you are. Who bewitched you? What is wrong with you? And now as we get here to verse 15, he brings down and calms down a bit and says, let's take a moment, let's talk about human logic. Brothers, we're in this together. And Paul begins by referring just to basic human logic. In the Greek and Romans, there were covenants were not changed or annulled. For you and I, we may think of wills and testimonies, and we understand that those can be changed, but there were, were in the ancient time, there were certain types of covenants that were never changed. They weren't, they weren't uh, changed, they weren't null and void, they were eternal. And that's what Paul is saying here, is that this promise, this covenant, was not taken away. In this case, the promise comes from an eternal God, and it's based on his faithfulness, not Abraham's. And that's an important note. The covenant that God made with Abraham was for all eternity and for his descendants. It was not nullified or made void when he or his descendants died, did it? Or when the law came. There was nothing that God says, well, these, this land is going to be yours, this blessing is going to be for you and your descendants until the law comes. But the promise was confirmed by God. And Paul says that's superior to the law. Not that the law was not given by God, but the promise was something that God gave to Abraham, his descendants. And God's promises are unchanging. They're unfailing. A promise by God, you can take that to the bank. And let me share with you as a side note, find the promises of God that are in there. He loves us. He'll keep us. He'll strengthen us. There's so many promises that would encourage us through this week and through this day. Hold on to those, for he's a God that holds on to his promises. You and I sometimes have a hard time understanding that. Because how many of us have we had a promise broken to us? Or have we broken a promise? But not God. And so that promise was confirmed by God. It's one that cannot be broken, so it's superior. It cannot be made null and void. No one can wash it away. The second reason that we see that the promise is superior to the law is in verse 17. We're going to skip 16 for just a moment and go to verse 17 in that the promise was chronologically first. For he says, this is what I mean in verse 17, the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Abraham takes priority since it is first. This is a restatement of verse 15 in that the purpose of the law was not to replace the promise or to make it void. God set the standard for being counted righteous by faith over 500 years before the Mosaic Covenant. When God gave the Israelites the Mosaic Covenant, he was not instituting a new way of salvation. Abraham was justified apart from and before the law. And again, we learned that several weeks ago, but we read it once again in Romans chapter 4. Is that Abraham was justified, counted righteous, before the sign of the covenant and before the law. So the promise was chronologically first 
And so the law does not come back and take it away. Let's go to number three, for these are simple. We don't have to belabor the point. The promise was confirmed by God. It's superior because it was chronologically first. And thirdly, it's superior because the promise was complete in its effectiveness. And that's in verse 18. Look at verse 18 with me if you have your Bible open still. For it says, For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You see, the promises were based on God's work rather than attained through human effort. It included land and universal blessings, and it was given to Abraham's offspring, his descendants. It was confirmed to Isaac in Genesis chapter 26, and it was given to Jacob and confirmed in Jacob in Genesis chapter 28 and in Genesis chapter 35. The Abraham and Mosaic covenant are different in several ways. The Abraham covenant is an unconditional promise. It was given by the grace of God and enforced by God's faithfulness, while the Mosaic covenant was a conditional law that was given by God that demands obedience. And I would say that it's because God said to Abraham, I will, I will, I will. Go back to Genesis 15 this week if you need to. It's a promise by God. But yet, Mosaic covenant, God said to Moses, Thou shall, thou shall not. Big difference, is it not? It's the difference from a parent who says, Hey, listen, I'm going to take you to the zoo, to his young child. It's the difference saying, Well, if you clean up your room, I'll take you to the zoo. Or if you do not get in trouble, I'll take you to the zoo. Which one is better? The promise, right? I take the promise over the thou shalls and thou shall nots all the time. But that's the difference. You see, the promise talked about God's plan, God's grace, God's initiative, God's sovereignty, His blessings, and His promise. Whereas the law talked about man's duty, man's works, his responsibility, his behavior, his obedience, which we knew that he could not do at all. The promise which stood for grace had only to be believed. But the law which stood for the works had to be obeyed. John Stott writes that the law requires works of human achievement. The gospel requires faith in Christ's achievement. The law makes demands and bids us to obey. The gospel brings promises and bids us believe. But as we've been looking at on Sunday school in Romans 6 and 7, that the law was incapable of helping us be effective in obeying. We're going to see that a little bit next week and the week after. For the law had no power, whereas the promise does, because it's based on God's faithfulness, whereas the law was based on my faithfulness to it. John Bunyan writes a little poem. Where he says, run, John, run, the law commands, but give us neither feet nor hands. For better news the gospel brings, for it binds us fly and then gives us wings. See, there's the difference. The promise truly is the gospel. The law is the law. It has a different purpose than the promise. So the promise was complete in his effectiveness. God gave a promise and wills it to be done. The law says do, but gives us no power 
to do it. It was by the promise, though, that we also have the inheritance that's spoken of in verse 18. It's not by the law. Do this, don't do this, and you get the law, but it was a promise first. The final inheritance is not obtained by observing the law since all violate its provisions and wound up under a curse. We saw that last week. But it's a gift of grace of God. In Romans chapter 4, verse 7 through 13, we read that the land is more than just a piece of ground in the Middle East. When Paul, when God told Abraham to look all and you'll see all that you see, and you're just, many times we think of just a piece of property in the Middle East. But in Romans 4, Paul exposits that it's much greater than that, for it refers to the whole world. I bring you back to Romans chapter 4, verse 13, for he says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. And that did not come through the law, but it came through the righteousness of faith. So how do you get, you and I, get our inheritance of the world? We don't get it from the thou shalt and the thou shalt nots. For if that's the case, you and I are all hopeless and left destitute with no inheritance. But the inheritance is based on a promise where God says, I will give it to you. So the promise is superior because it was confirmed by God. It was chronologically first and it was complete in its effectiveness. I now like to bring you down to number four, the fourth reason. And we go back to verse 16 for the promise is Christ-centered. And let me tell you, that's where you and I always need to be. Our gospel we need to be Christ-centered. Our Bible reading needs to be Christ-centered. Our worship needs to be Christ-centered. Our living and giving need to be Christ-centered. Our decisions and our parenting and our loving of our spouses need to be Christ-centered. But the promise is Christ-centered. Look in chapter 3, verse 16. This is a big verse, by the way. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Now this verse has always been kind of difficult because in reality, offspring is a collective noun. There is no plural of offspring. You know, it's, it's like, you know, descendant. You know, well, descendant, I guess, is, what's another, what's a good collective noun? Seed? Seed, okay, yeah, seed is one. Do you have the seed that you need? It, sometimes it can be both, and it matters on its context. But here, Paul is doing something that's very important. It's going to be mind-blowing to the common Jew. It was here in verse 16, we're going to learn an important spiritual truth, and the key that you and I need to understanding God's redemptive historical plan. And this is a key to the gospel. And it's God's plan to reconcile the world to himself. We find that the promised offspring goes back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in which God promised to Adam and Eve that he would provide the one, capital O, the one who will redeem man from their sin and their fallen state. You may go back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, 
And I finally understood this verse. Don and I were reading it last week. And I says, well, this verse says the exact opposite of what I always believed until I read it actually in its context. Because he makes a curse to the serpent. When he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What is it talking about? He's talking about victory. He says, you may won right now, but let me tell you, serpent, you will lose. For there is one who's going to harm you to the point of death. And then the rest of Scripture then details the revealed plan of, of how God is going to accomplish that. And you and I can follow the promise trail very simply through Scripture. As we see Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, there's the starting mark. Then we go to Seth in Genesis 4.25 of God gives them another son. Then we see Abraham then in Genesis 12. Out of all of humanity... The promised one, the Redeemer, is going to come from the family of Abraham. Abraham has two sons. Which line will it take? The promised one comes through Isaac in Genesis 21, not through Ishmael. But then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. Which one will it come through? And we then see in Genesis that God is going to take it through the line of Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons. Where's the promised one going to come through? Where is the hero that's going to save the day? We find in Genesis 49, it's going to come through the tribe of Judah. And then out of the tribe of Judah, who's going to be that king? Who's going to be that dragon slayer? The one who'll stomp on the head of the serpent. We find that in 2 Samuel as David rises up and God says it's going to be through you the promised one will come. And then you and I get a glimpse of the gospel in both Matthew and Luke as we see that Jesus is that son of David. This introduces us to the biblical method, and here it is, I'm about to lose all of you, of typology. All right, anybody's eyes glazing over? Do we need to stand up and do a little break, maybe do a dance or something of that nature? The typology is a method of biblical interpretation whereby an element found in the Old Testament is seen to prefigure or point to one found in the New Testament. The initial one is called the type and the fulfillment is designated the antitype. Now either a type or an antitype may be a person, a thing, or even an event. But often the type is messianic and frequently is related to the idea of salvation. So Thomas Schreiner, he's a professor at Southern Baptist Theology, writes that Jesus is the representative offspring of Abraham and David and the fulfillment of the original redemptive promises in Genesis 3.15. And that's what Paul is saying when he says, doesn't mean many and all your descendants are going to be the Messiah, but there's going to be one offspring that I'm making the promise to. He's the one who will slay the great dragon. He's the one who inherit the promises. He's the one that I'm going to make faithful, that I'm going to empower. So Adam and Eve and Seth and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David, they're the type. Jesus is the anti-type. Now we don't like that term because anti-type reminds us of antichrist. But that's not what it means. Anti-type does not mean against the type. It just means pointing to the greater fulfillment. Now, as we think of that, Paul is saying Jesus 
is the promised one of Genesis 12, Genesis 15. What does that point to? The promised one of Genesis 3, 15. And this is a very big and important assertion that Paul is making to the Judaizers and to the churches. To say that Jesus is the offspring and he's the one that they were to look for and not everyone will fulfill that is to say that the Messiah, the long-awaited king, the Redeemer, has finally come. They are no longer to seek after another. God's promise has become a reality. I want to share with you four things that qualify Christ to be that offspring or to be that seed of Abraham. First, we see that he's a Jew in the strict physical sense, and he can trace his parentage back to Abraham. We see that both in Matthew and also in Luke. He also, secondly, he lived the life of faith, which according to Galatians 3.7, qualified some but not all Jews to be sons of Abraham. And thirdly, Christ's death and resurrection as the Son of God atoned for sin and purchased all the blessings promised to Abraham's descendants. And fourthly, only by belonging to him can any Jew or Gentile become a true child of Abraham and an heir of the promises. Galatians 3.29 that we'll look at next week or the week after says if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You look at those four things, Jesus accomplished all of it. He lived a life of faith. He fulfilled all of the law in its entirety. What you and I could not do, he did. He was righteous and stood before God as a complete, perfect man, the second Adam, able to do what Adam could not do, or anyone else upon the earth. He obeyed the Father completely. We also see in Christ's death and resurrection, he became the substitute, the sacrifice of God. And it's important for you and I to understand that it's only through Jesus Christ that you and I can stand before God. But it's through that great promise, and Jesus is able to do what God required. Here's the good news of the Gospels. Abraham was justified by his faith in God, not by his works. In the same way, you and I are justified by God when we put our faith in him. When we do that, we are united in Christ and we become his brothers, his daughters. We become God's children and we now also receive that eternal inheritance as we're adopted into God's family. And we too receive the blessings of Abraham. Ephesians chapter 1. I want you to look at this passage of scripture. For he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, 
according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ. In other words, the mystery is, who is going to be the promised one, the offspring? We now know that it is Christ. As the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things on earth, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. Hence, why is the promise superior? Because in the promise we receive an inheritance. That's the gospel. And that's what he wants the churches of Galatia to know. It's what he wants the Judaizers to understand. It's what he wants to open up the hearts of the Jews who were continually looking for a Messiah, who were trying to justify themselves with their works. He says it's futile. There is no gain in it any longer. In today's passage, Paul is instructing Christians to keep the storyline of the Bible in view. To turn to circumcision and the law is to turn back the clock in salvation's history and to deny that Christ's work completed the promise of God. That is the power of the gospel. Doug Wilson writes, he speaks about the gospel is the story of a dragon fight. And I would say if there's anyone here that has any screenwriting skills, this here would be a great little feature. Listen to what Doug Wilson has to write. He says, We fell into sin as a race because we were beguiled by a dragon. God promised to send a warrior who would crush the seed of that serpent, and he has done this in Jesus Christ. In sum, the gospel is a story of a dragon fight. The serpent of Genesis is the dragon of Revelation. And we are called to rejoice that the dragon has been slain. Now, Baptists at this time would say, praise God, or amen. But they would say amen with a little bit more gusto. In contrast, we have reduced the gospel to four basic steps towards personal happiness. And we are much further from the truth than our fathers were when they told their glorious stories. And I would say, fathers, mothers, that's what we need to do. We need to get back to dragon-slaying stories. It's interesting today that your children today in Sunday school, they're looking at that story today. As Emily was studying, I was saying, well, you're just doing what I'm doing today. And I share with her, what you need to do is you need to break down how do you talk about Genesis 3.15, about I'm going to put enmity between your seed and your seed. How do you tell that to children? Well, you tell them there's a hero that's going to save the day and he's going to come and he's going to slay this great dragon. That's the gospel. And you and I can rejoice because the dragon has been slayed, grabbed by the tail and ripped out of heaven with his ghosts. This is another way of saying that the dragon lore is truer than therapy speak, which is what we find the gospel reduced to today. Today in many churches and to many people, the gospel has been reduced to therapy speak. Give me five things that I can do to be a better husband or wife. Can you give me three things that I can do at work to make my employees listen to me or to my boss love me? Can you give me seven things that I can do financially that will set me up for retirement? That's what most people are seeking today. Make 
me feel better about myself. That's what most people are coming in the doors. And they're great when they feel that. They're disappointed when they come in and the pastor just spoke on God's word. And maybe that describes some of you today. He said, man, I just wish we'd get out of Galatians. Just tell us something about some thematic things. Well, this is true. This is pure. And you and I, our hearts need to be dragged back to the hero dragon story because it is the gospel, it's the power, and it's the promise of God that he will send a hero to slay that dragon that brings so much hurt in our lives. Yesterday as we were doing the memorial and I was praying that for the most part most of them did not know the gospel. And I told them, listen, I'm going to share the gospel pure and simple. And in it, we had to direct their hearts that, you know what? We are not perfect before God. We need a Savior. And it's not just about being a better God. We've made the gospel and the Bible and made it about self-improvement. Jesus is just another guru. He's my sensei. He's my gym trainer. He's my dietitian. He's much more than that. He's the offspring of Abraham. The promised one, the seed, the hero of the story sent to save us from what our fallen state needed. For the Jews, the law had become their therapy. That's why the Judaizers were hanging on to it. That's why they were bringing it. They used the law to make themselves feel better about their accomplishments and to justify their self. It was their way in which they said, well, if I do these commands, then I feel good. And you and I know what this means because you and I think that we have a good week if we read our Bibles X amount of times and we prayed X amount of times and we did this many times a week. Do we not? And we say, boy, I've been a good Christian, yet our heart joins with God in condemning us because though we may not have done anything wrong, our hearts and our minds have been anything but purely devoted to God. You're hearing me, right? Do not let Scripture become therapy. For you and I do the same thing today, reducing the gospel promise into something it is not in order to justify ourselves with our own self-righteousness. That's why the promise is superior. And that's what Paul is bringing them, in a way to encourage them, but also to rebuke them and say, get your mind on what God is speaking about. What does this mean for us today? You and I, from this passage, you and I need to realize that we need to read and understand the whole storyline of the Bible. The Jews did not understand it. The Gentiles, the believers, did not understand the storyline of the Bible. It's incumbent for us as believers today to understand what does the Bible tell us. It is not 66 diverse books that tell different stories, but they are 66 books written by God to reveal to us one story. And so for you and I, we need to understand what that story is. The whole Bible is the gospel, not Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. The whole book is God's great news of how he's redeeming a fallen man and reconciling us to himself. 
That's our great hope. And I would encourage you, for many of us, we get disappointed, we get frustrated in our Bible reading, do we not? We find ourselves, Genesis, Exodus, feeling good, Leviticus, oh my goodness, and then Numbers, and then Deuteronomy, and then Joshua, Judges are pretty cool, because we like all that fighting and stuff. For, you know, Samuel and all that, so kind of, then all of a sudden, here we go to Psalms. Then we go to Song of Solomon, no one knows what to do with that. And then all of a sudden I'm in Lamentations, and I'm in Job, and boy, I just... But you know what? The problem that we need to understand is how to read the Bible. The Bible becomes much clearer when you and I know where we are in the storyline. Are we in the promise, or are we in the law? Are we in the redemption, or are we still in the fall? Are we looking forward to the consummation, or are we still back here? Once you understand where you are in the story, you understand who the characters are and what's going on and what's their thinking. Very similar to any book you were to pick up. If you were to pick up Harry Potter 1 and started from the back pages, you wouldn't know what's going on. So let me encourage you, understand what that story is. You and I need to recognize that the Bible is one story that progressively reveals God's plan. For in 1 Peter 3.15, the apostle commands us that in our hearts we need to honor Christ. The Galatians were not honoring Christ. They were actually demeaning him by by listening and, and falling under the influence of these Judaizers who were not honoring Christ as the offspring. But not only are we to honor Christ the Lord as holy, but we're to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason that's hope in you now. How do you get through a tough situation? How do you get through a death? How do you get through the death of a loved one or a financial or an emotional breakdown? How do you get through life when your marriage seems to be crumbling and falling apart and you're losing your children? How do you get along in this life when work seems to be dragging you down and it's no fun and you feel like everything's against you? How do you deal with that? By going back to recognize that God has sent a hero. He's going to slay every each and every one of those dragons that seems to drag you down and try to take you away from God. For God has made a promise. I will. I will. I will. Would you hold on to that this morning? Father, make your promise sure in our hearts. Let us realize these promises are yours that you have given to us, not by our works, not by any good that we have done, but Lord, as a gracious God who reaches out to sinners and say, I will bring you out of that filth. I will feed you. I will give you something to drink. I will restore you. I will give you an inheritance. Let us be strengthened by that this morning. Let us recognize the importance of reading your scripture in the right way. I pray that you would just move our hearts to do so. We pray this in the name of your son, that great hero, we pray. God's people said, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, 
May God bless you in everything you do.